Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Matt Passor. Matt is currently the pitching coach at Miami, Ohio University. In this episode, he talks a little about his own background and his own coaching journey, which started out um, at a junior college and just progressed as he continued to climb up the ladder. We get into his college recruiting, what he looks for when he's out recruiting players, and lastly, what it looks like once a player actually gets to Miami and what their player development system looks like from the pitching perspective. This episode is brought to you by Marv Bands. Marv Bands are a great movement prep for hitting, great band work for pitching, something that I use all the time for my hitters. If you head to marvtraining.com, you'll be able to go check out all of their great stuff and gear there. They're also available at Dick's Sporting Goods. So Marv Bands, great product. Like I said, I use them regularly with all of my uh, players that I work with, and they're available at marvtraining.com as well as Dick's Sporting Goods. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Matt Passor. All right, Matt, appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Yeah, man, so uh, I've been following you guys. You know, I had Justin, your guys' hitting coach, on. Uh, geez, what was that? Not that long ago, actually. It was during quarantine, maybe April or May. And uh, he actually recommended that I, I get you on, too. And, I, you know, I've been since then, you know, following you pretty closely and talking to some other people who know you, too. And if you could just give everyone, you know, a little bit of, of your background. I know you're the pitching, pitching coach at Miami of Ohio, but you've, you've been to a few other places, too. So just like a brief just background on, on where you've been in your coaching journey. Sure. So directly after college, I actually went the route of selling cars. Oh, okay. The game a little bit, just kind of got into that for a year and then uh, got later and later into that and started driving Larry Hill Ford's trucks off to Lee baseball games to watch baseball instead <laughs> of selling cars and figured I would make the switch. Um, I started my coaching career at East Georgia State College in Swainsboro, Georgia, where I was able to be an assistant for one year and then got to be the head coach for the next three years, which was some awesome experience. And then really my fourth year being there, I got a call from Justin in August about an opening up at Miami. And I came up to Miami to be the volunteer for a year. And then similar story to East Georgia, once uh, after that year, uh, Matt Davis decided to become a scout and I got to become the pitching coach at Miami. So going back to your days as a car salesman, this is kind of a serious and funny question. Do you, did you, did that help you at all in recruiting? Because I, I know as a college coach, you got to be a good salesman too. Uh, more than any lesson I've ever learned about recruiting in the baseball world. Mm. And it, it was really cool because people hate you so much as soon as you come <laughs> apart and you literally get to ask them the same questions as a college baseball coach and they can't wait to answer you. So you learn a lot about recruiting personalities and trying to understand working with the individual and, you know, you get to ask some really specific questions about what matters most to that kid and you also understand some of the, you know, harder conversations about hey, this, this is where we're at with what we expect of you in your position. 
you know, and it's a lot easier to have those conversations with college baseball being the topic than uh, do you want to buy a car being the topic. Right, right. How, how in depth do you get when it comes to recruiting a player? I mean, are, are you talking to their high school teachers? I mean, like how, how in depth is it or does it just player to player dependent? Yeah, I think we try to create as many contacts as we can with people who know the player really well. So we try to, right, we have really specific things that we want to know about. And the more people who understand how they operate in those scenarios can help. I, I have never gone as far as a high school teacher, but as many coaches as that kid's ever played for, we'll try to reach out to them. Um, certainly the high school coach as well, especially, you know, now it's, high school and travel ball. And we end up talking to a lot more travel ball coaches, especially during the summer and fall. But that high school coach knows the kids so well and works with the kid in a really specific setting that's more similar to the setting they're coming to in college, right? They, they're not going to be playing at Lake Point at 10 a.m. for Miami. <laughs> the post-school, how are they at the park every day with consistency and competitiveness certainly matters. What are, what specifically are you looking for when you're going out and recruiting? I guess maybe actually now that I think about it, this could actually be interesting for people to hear because we're in a pandemic and it's a dead period right now. So maybe like right now, like are you actively recruiting players or is it like, well, let's wait. So I, let's, I'm not going to offer anyone right now because I want to make sure I can go. I want to see them in person next year, hopefully if there's a, an actual, you'll be able to recruit them. Yeah, I think – we all hope we can get out there and watch guys in person this spring after that April 15th, but we'll see. Um, you can still see a lot of what we're looking for just by watching videos and, you know, the elevated level of sending data has been incredible. I do love watching guys' body language, um, right? You want relentless competitors and there's a certain value in seeing that happen in games, watching how guys handle failure and success, watching guys, how they go after guys. I think you can see that. Um, overall stuff, the eye test still goes a really long way and a sharp breaking ball you can watch on TV and a sharp breaking ball you can definitely see on a computer, but getting that second level of metrics is always good. So without being to see guys in person, I think there's still a lot of value to recruiting right now. I think you can still learn a lot about the player and honestly, right now, just like if we were allowed to go out, um, we can't see anybody pitch live right now anyway. So point, yeah. at this point, it's really similar. And, you know, if you just find a new guy, it's about finding video from the summer. And luckily, with all the video that was taken this summer, even if you start talking in the process right now, you can go back and find a lot of that video and still watch that same player. Is there certain ages that you're specifically focusing on? I mean, it's seen, I've been hearing kids commit eighth graders. I mean, it does, is, it, is it at a point now where it doesn't even really matter the age? Like, you'll take a look? Uh, yeah, to an extent, right? If they're interested in Miami, we're, it's not a time where we're definitely going to tell kids, no, you're too young to, to like us. Um, I think you're significantly more specific the younger they get. Um, you know, we, we aren't extremely deep into the, the 24 class um, and we're kind of dipping our toes in the 23s, but 
if a kid has interest in Miami and you you like the way the body moves, you like some of the metrics that you're seeing, we're not going to stop the recruiting process just because of the kid's age. What about older kids? And I, I bring that up um, just out of this question, just because it, it seems because the recruiting process has gotten earlier that the later kids develop, if it's a late bloomer, for example, that schools may not have any money left at that time if they're a senior. Would you say, and I know maybe you don't want to like specifically talk about you, you guys and kind of show everyone your cards, but do you think that's true across the board in college baseball? I think there are certainly programs who understand that there are late bloomers and late bloomers are good a lot closer to the time that they get to college than the early bloomers, right? And there's value in the late bloomer. Maybe there's a chip on the shoulder because he didn't commit as early and that kid's had to work hard for four years and that kid had to, to develop work ethic and a mentality that while all of his buddies are committing, he's not. And maybe that kid fits your mentality mold a little bit better just because he had to work hard throughout his high school career. So I, I think it would be poor of us to, to sign everybody really, really early. And it would be poor of us to, to wait until the last minute to sign everybody. But, you know, that timing it is so interesting when it comes to recruiting that if a kid's going to be able to help you in a baseball game, I think we're all looking for that at the end of the day. And, you know, then it's just the transparency about where you're at with your roster and what you have moving forward. And then just finding if that fits what both of you guys want. One of the things that, that I've that I used to hear years and years ago was, you know, not there, shorter guys weren't heavily recruited. And mm -hmm. it seems that it's flipped a little bit how and, and I even um, maybe it was from Stroman or some other guys too, or shorter guys, uh, you know, being able to have higher spin rate. And I don't know exactly offhand, I probably should have researched this like exactly why but do you recruit specifically, like, do you see a shorter guy or a taller guy and become attracted to them just based on height alone? Uh, no. Okay. I think we, we operate on all ends of the height spectrum. We have, I think, what would be considered a shorter pitcher, but he has the lower release height with a, a really cool approach angle into the zone and gets a lot of swing and miss on his fastball because one, it's firm, two, the angle works out, and three, he wouldn't be the pitcher that he is if he were taller. So, you know, we like to uh, diversify the arms that we throw out there. And I, I, I would say one thing in recruiting, we don't want just a bunch of stock righties who all throw the same, right? If you're just a, a three-quarter righty with a fastball and a slider, it's hard to take out your Friday guy to bring in the same guy with lesser stuff. And that's not always true. You can bring out the Friday guy and bring in a premium arm as well, but we do try to diversify the arms a little bit more. Yeah, it, it is. It is so uh, interesting just to look at the recruiting and it's so, it's so hard. I mean, it really truly is to be able to, you know, predict where a player is like how much they actually love the game are they even going to stick to playing baseball by the time they get there and how they adjust once they get to school too because now they're surrounded by especially you know where you're at you know some really good pitchers so it's kind of like you know when they get there do they you know rise to the occasion or do they kind of like get intimidated what what does the fall look like 
for you guys? I mean, is there an onboarding type process for you know, younger pitchers to, you know, maybe because you're not exactly familiar or you haven't been able to actually like get your hands on them yet to ease them into the program? For sure. And I, I micromanage that without a doubt. We want guys to be as prepped and ready for the, you know, August to November fall as possible. And if that involves taking time off in the summer, that's fine. I would say a decent number of our incoming arms are going to take time off before they get to college, just because if you're playing an 18 u travel team, I, I don't value that experience as much as I value the experience of you pitching in the fall at Miami. And we're going to be able to train at the, the high intent that we would expect guys to, right? I, I don't agree with the belief that you can't train velocity and command at the same time. So when guys get on campus, we have to teach them what it feels like to be sore and that be okay. Because sometimes if you go, you know, pitch all summer and you just take a bunch of days off after you pitch because your arm's sore, you're not putting your arm in good shape. So we have to teach that part and then we can, you know, really get after them all fall and put them through a really tough fall. But to do that, you got to make sure they come in healthy and on-ramped properly and ready to go for that fall. Do you really want guys taking, though, that big of a break from just throwing in general? We've significantly limited the, the number of breaks and the time period of breaks since I started coaching, and it keeps getting lesser and lesser. And the main reason we did it was to avoid injury. And as we keep avoiding injury, we get to keep, you know, pushing that envelope to see where we're at. But we do have guys take some time off. It varies based on the player. But we, I like guys taking some time away from baseball. And even if it's just not physically, sometimes after you throw a hundred innings in a year, maybe you need a little bit of a mental break too. Going back to the recruiting, um, you know, when I was in high school, which wasn't that long ago, I guess technically, I mean, 10 years was when I graduated, but you know, if you hit 90 miles an hour, that was a really big deal. Now it's not that big of a deal at all. I mean, it seems like everybody's doing that. So when you're recruiting, are there numbers that like they sh need to be around? I mean, I know it's age dependent too, and but I mean, let's just say for example, if it's like an upperclassman, like does he need to at least be around 90 miles an hour for you to to take a look at him? Uh, no, and if he throws sidearm, I'll love him. So, <laughs> right, the the arm slot can vary. The stuff that you pitch with can vary. Um, I think one general rule, at least for me, would be you always want to be able to recruit a pitch. Like, hey, that pitch can come and pitch as a freshman. You recruit a lefty with a dirty breaking ball. Hey, that kid could probably come in and get lefties out in college right now. That is an initial stage of what we can move forward with. And then there's always the arm action guy or, you know, a lefty with a plus changeup. Those guys can, can definitely get seen. But to an extent, there's a velocity that matters. But if you do something that we believe in outs in college, the velocity might matter less. Yeah, I think that is the cool thing about college is I've seen some lower velocities work in, in big games. Um, I just don't know. I just know that's really hard to recruit just because, I mean, you're bringing a guy in. I mean, he's not doesn't have great stuff. I guess if you can not give him a whole bunch of money, that would be one thing. But I don't know. It's just – it's tough. I mean, you, you, you guys, at, you know, coaching college baseball wear like 10 hats. I mean, you don't, you only have so much time. You only have, 
so many resources. I remember we were talking on the phone yesterday when you were, you know, coaching junior college baseball, like you literally did everything. I mean, you were, you know, the grounds crew, like hitting fungos, throwing BP at the same time. Um, so for those, for those people who are out there listening, since you have coached junior college baseball, and it seems as if more people now because of the virus are looking to potentially go that route of the junior college, what, what should they be looking for or looking, looking to, I guess uh, I should say, in a, in a school if they're going to go that JUCO route? I think you should make sure that the school provides what you need. If you just need innings because you're a really good player and you got to go get your grades right, that's one school. If you need development, they're just like just like at any level, if they're your colleges who just roll the balls out there as many times as possible and development isn't quite as much of a priority, they just recruit better players. And that is certainly all well and good, but it's, it's just like the recruiting process anywhere else. Hopefully you go in with an understanding of what you need to get to the next level and then that school provide that opportunity. What, what is it like for you guys typically in the fall from a development standpoint? So pitchers come in, and I can just break down this process for you. Pitchers come in and get screened right away by our trainer. And we're really lucky that our trainer, Kate Pinkerton, does an incredible job with our guys in terms of customizing some needs with regards to movement. So we get that done as soon as possible just to make sure that there aren't any, you know, red flags of potential injury. We get to put them through uh, what's called DARI. It evaluates the body and gives us, you know, a 24 page printout on our guys' bodies, which makes it a lot easier to go through that. Um, and then we also compare that with a mechanical analysis. And so basically me, Kate and Adam, our director of pitching development, it was cool this year. We all just sat down in my house for two days and went over video <laughs> with the screenings and so then we put a plan together for the guy. And what we do is put together a pre-throw, a throwing program, and then a post-throw throwing program for them. And we print that out and give it to the guy. And that's basically like, hey, on a work day, this is what a day in the life is going to look like. We break down why they're doing that, some of the movements we're trying to create, and you know, try to show some video of that, try to show why we're doing what we're doing and what we're trying to project moving forward. And then, you know, those guys, it's, it's up to them to take ownership of that program and, and kind of whittle out anything that doesn't feel right to them. I think one of the easiest things I learned as a freshman in college, my pitching coach said, hey, if it feels like you have to work harder to throw the ball the same, maybe that's something that just doesn't fit your body type. Mm. That communication becomes a big piece there. And then we just keep trying to challenge the body as much as we can. Um, at Miami, we do. I'm a big long toss and pull down guy. I love them. I think pull downs are awesome. We'll do anything from, you know, analyzing your movements in pull downs to on the mound and work through that. But, and then the other part is the weight room. And our strength coach, Nate Brock, crushes it. He gets to work with us on figuring out again with Kate, what the body can and can't do and where we can push the body. He works with me on that pitcher's needs for what we're trying to do mechanically and what that kid needs from a weight room, right? Some guys need to build strength. 
Some guys don't. Some guys just need yeah. to be better. And trying to figure out where those guys fit into each one of those is, you know, the primary goal. And then other than work days, we try to get them to compete as much as humanly possible and be savage competitors where, you know, they're yelling and screaming at each other and, and trying to get as good as possible every day. Yeah, I was actually on my way over here. I was listening to a podcast with um, Eric Jaggers or Jaegers, I forget how you pronounce his last name. And one of the things that he was talking about this year, uh, at the, I don't know, right before they came back, um, you know, in the second spring train was how they would utilize whiteboards for competition. They'd pick different statistics and just how even guys at that level that eat that stuff up and how, how much that helps. Um, I think that that's one of the most like underutilized things in, in a practice or anything is just that competition piece. And some people do it and maybe some don't just because of time or whatnot. Um, but how big of like practice on a daily basis is based off of competition. And maybe it's different for pitchers. I don't know because of the throwing, but um, I'm actually, that's kind of why I'm curious. I'm asking the question, like how are you able to build in those competitions daily with pitchers? Yeah, and I think that's where, right, I think time would be an excuse there. If it matters to you, you're going to find time to do it. And it's just sometimes you have to be creative with it where if a guy's on a recovery day, you know, maybe competing isn't, isn't his primary that day, but any other day, right, maybe we're doing speed development training for our pitchers that day and we have rock end it with some races or some times or maybe – we're finishing our throwing with, you know, we'll pull out the, the four square net and it's, hey, you against your partner, call the pocket, loser has to do whatever. Um, I'm a big fan of anytime push-ups where, like, <laughs> competing, you beat me, you have 10 anytime push-ups over me and literally anytime you can tell me to do a push-up and you have 10 of them. So if you see me walking across campus, you can yell, hey, go do two push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> push-ups but, I like uh, that I like that and then you compete in bullpens we we talk to our guys a lot about hey your work days are when you really need to develop and that's where we'll our, our guys get on the mound four or five days a week so we're on there a lot this fall I think the main thing we could get better at was competing so we were going to take their bullpen day and then their live day and all that was going to matter was competing mm. we, developing pitches on different days we were you know developing on other days so that on you know Tuesday if you're throwing on Friday you're going to do a pig bullpen against your buddy and you're going to compete the whole time and you know vertical shin angle halfway down the mound doesn't matter it's mm -hmm. are you getting pitches and are you able to beat that guy I love the push-up I mean just I, I think I might steal that and just I don't know how I'm going to you put that into our organization, but somehow maybe it's just a coach's thing too. I don't know. I love that. Um, going back to when you were talking about long toss, I, and you said you're a big proponent of long toss and pull downs. Do you, is there, is there with some players an issue where like they just, they don't buy into that or is it at this point, everyone's pretty much all in on that from a pitching standpoint? I would say we have a, a couple of guys who don't long toss. Um, there are some guys who I, I really like it because I think it frees up a lot within the mechanics and the body, and it allows you to try to throw really hard without a target and just let it rip. And the freedom that that creates, I think, is really good for a lot of guys. 
but also we have guys who are maybe a little bit more three-quarter to low three-quarter who start really losing that elbow and getting underneath the ball and pushing so we just don't have that guy long toss because it, it hinders mechanics significantly more than it helps we have a guy who so when, when he long tosses his his arm drops yep yep trying to get underneath it and push it just because you know that's how he sees the best fit to air it out like that and it just and the kid can still get out to 180 feet and not lose the integrity of his mechanics and, and throw really hard he can still do pull downs he just might need a little bit more time out at 180 when everybody else is going back further so the distance might vary but i would say most of our guys get out there pretty far at what point do you try to transition a player from like over over the top to sidearm or even submarine we try to recruit submarine guys. We try to recruit other arm action guys. I, I think that it would take a distinct scenario. Um, you know, we use metrics like everybody else, where if you just have a bad fastball that doesn't play in game, Rapsodo says it's bad. You don't have off speed that's good in game and Rapsodo says it's bad. There's a certain point where it's like, hey man, you either need to throw a hundred or we got to change something else up. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's, it's certainly not a bad thing, right? There are big leaguers who throw sidearm. Um, but I, I think, one, for the sake of communication with the player, you have to have some pretty good justification to to totally change their arm angle. But, two, it also takes an athlete to be able to do that, right? You can't just change an arm angle and say, hey, throw lower, and, and that guy's going to go all of a sudden be good. Right. I think also one of the things that's always – stuck out to me just watching pitchers and then hearing them talk about hitters is how much credit they give hitters. I mean, and it's, I think it's like getting them to understand that how hard hitting is and you could literally just throw it right down the middle and your chances of you getting them out are still extremely high. Do you have that talk with your pitchers? Like guys, like quit trying to be so technical with hitting like the top or at low and outside corner and just throw it over the plate and they're going to hit it, and it's you're probably going to get them out. Yeah, I think that there are two ways that you can, you know, show guys things that too, right? Flipping the statistics, I think, shows a lot to guys. You know, just that idea of, hey, guys hit 300 in this count. Well, showing it the other way, hey, in this count, we get them out 70% of the time. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. The fourth realization, I think, goes goes good for guys, but also – it's the same. I was listening to something today where uh, they don't talk about walks in their program and it's just, it's worded, it's wording, but like we just talk about attack, right? It's the only sport in the world where you have the ball and you're considered on defense. And we try to flip that mentality and, you know, we, we try to eliminate the thought process of the hitter as much as we can without, you know, I mean, we, we speak pretty degrading and pretty disrespectfully about hitters just in, <laughs> you know, it's, but at the end of the day, it's about executing pitches and, you know, the less we can focus on that, you know, if we need to read a swing, obviously we're not avoiding that, but once you commit to a pitch, it's about executing that pitch a heck of a lot more than it is anything else. Do you uh, go over to like, takes with your, your pitchers? Like when you see a hitter, like take a pitch a certain way, like that means X, Y, Z. Some, right. Some guys are 
able to use that information and make the next step. Some guys, it's information overload. And you just try to create enough conversation about it in team meetings where guys know, hey, pass, I did see this in a game. What do you got? Awesome. Yeah, let's dive in and let's start talking about some things you can see when you're watching. And then it, it ends up being older guys. And what's cool is our guys have unbelievable conversations during games, right? So you can, okay, now I've just had that conversation with pass. Tomorrow I'm going to sit next to this guy and we're going to analyze hitters while they stand in the box and we can watch stance positioning com combine with some timing, combine with what a swing looks like. And, you know, then they, our guys are really good. They take information and run with it and you give them a, a little nugget. Next thing you know, they're telling you a lot about what they learned the next day. Well, I think, I think also sometimes it's a point of, and that's why sometimes I'm so careful what I say, because I could be bringing up something that's not an issue, but now because I brought it up, it be, they start thinking about it and like, then it becomes an issue. So it's like figuring out like what, like what to say, when to say it. I don't know. That's tough. I feel like that's a little bit of experience thing and just kind of more along the lines of art of coaching. When it comes to two strikes, like once pitchers get to two strikes, I see a lot of them struggle once they finally get to two strikes and they have the hitter where they want them. What, are there any tactics or, or anything that you help or tell your guys when they get to two strikes to just finish them off? Because I, I see pitchers struggle with finishing at times. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things we do is try to help our guys understand their stuff as much as possible. And we use MLB The Show and graphics from that as much as we can, just because literally all of our guys play it. But, right, just like that circle target moves around when you're trying to pick where to throw in MLB The Show, we, we have guys draw that same miss zone, as we call it. And, like, hey, if it's 0-2, all we're doing is moving the miss zone of a really good pitch to this area. And you can show them video of, right, where their pitch tunnels for as long as possible and looks like a strike. And then it's just, all we're trying to do is aim different and still throw a nasty pitch. And I think you have to, to work with guys a little bit. Some guys try to throw the extra nasty breaking ball and it sucks. Some guys try to throw the extra nasty breaking ball and it's really good. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Right, watching those guys go through bullpens and try to execute pitches helps you understand them. And then also, we do track O2 strikeouts in the fall, and that is a, a category that matters to us. How many times do you get to O2? And then how many times does the at-bat end once you get to O2? And I think just, you know, that's part of the data understanding. Just teaching count pitching and how to use your stuff best is part of the teaching. And then also helping guys understand that like, hey, within, within how we pitch, we don't waste pitches. We're not throwing a non-competitive pitch because, you, I mean, you still go watch some high school games where they get 0-2 and that team's philosophy is to throw an 0-2 fastball in the other batter's box and it couldn't be more of a waste of a pitch. They might as well throw it over the batter's net. I mean, it, <laughs> so it, it's, it's just trying to, to combine some some ways for learning and help guys understand because also like guys everybody wants to strike as many people out as possible and it, it's the most selfish pitch you could ever throw everybody wants you to strike this guy out 
So don't waste pitches. Don't get into a one-two count. Let's just end it now and do our thing. Totally, yeah. That's 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 some good stuff there. I mean, is there is there a point or a pitch count that you follow? I mean, I I read a little bit online about pitchers and pitch counts. I think it's also you know it needs to be like have the conversation of how much stress too, like how easy are the innings. So I mean, is it just a ballpark figure for you? Is it just a you've had experience long enough watching guys and now you know when they're done. Yeah, I think there's some theory and then there's the in-game practice of it, right? I think the easiest time to talk about that is early in the season. You know what you've ramped that arm up to throw and your Friday guy throwing a gem on Friday opening night is when it challenges you the most, right? And I think that accuracy and the radar gun are two just really easy ways to see that all of a sudden your 92-95 arm is 88-90. You know he's at his pitch count. Man, even if he's pitching pretty good, I think that you're probably at a place where you, you probably should have already pulled him. So maybe now's the time to go ahead and get him out of there. But you can see those things pretty easily. And I think that that, that gives you a pretty good sign of what you should do. You guys had any situations where uh, oh, I'm trying to think of a few pitchers this year who the manager came out to take them out and they just started screaming like crazy because um, they didn't want to come out. You guys ever have any of the, any of those guys who are like, you know, when when uh, Danny Hayden's going out there to, to to take him out of the game and they're just like not doing it? No doubt. And right there are times where we go out as pitching coaches and you don't know if the result's going to be to pull the guy or not. And then all of a sudden you see stars in the eyes and it's like, hey, mm -hmm. man, for you coach I'm just saying okay yeah we're gonna go ahead <laughs> versus you go out there and maybe it was a four pitch walk and the kid's a relentless competitor he knows what you're coming out there for and it's like all right man but we're going batter by batter so you better get your act together otherwise you know you see who's warming up we're ready to go but figure it out and that guy accepts the challenge and then the guy comes in the next inning but it's I think that's one of the more fun challenges within you know, making those decisions. When it comes to knowing who's going to be a starter versus a reliever, especially after the guys get to uh, Miami and are just, are just playing for you in general, how much of that is determined just by their personality, if any? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point there. I think that it takes a certain personality to be able to come into a really big situation and get outs. And I was told this one time, and it's more of a joke than anything, but right, the the biggest trouble guy is either a psycho or the quietest guy on your team, and you just switch. Yeah. <laughs> but it's our job to figure that out in the fall, who can handle the situation, who can't. And, you know, what's weird is everybody wants to be a starter, but the starter might be the guy who couldn't handle that situation. So you just need him to start the game instead of being that yeah. moment. And, but at the end of the day, starter or reliever, you need to be able to handle adversity. You need to be able to handle the run game. You need to be able to do those things. It's just, can you come into a first and second one out and do your job? Well, and, and speaking of what you just brought upon of, of a guy starting just to start, you see that a little bit more in professional baseball. I know they have, you know, the farm system and everything. So they have access to a lot more guys, but is that something that you've thought of, you know, when it comes to just a, a typical game or maybe like a, a big weekend series in the Mac where 
it's kind of a Johnny Holstaff in the sense of you each guy's only going to get one or two innings, so no hitters can get comfortable up and see, uh, you know, the same pitcher two to three times. Yeah, and I, I think if you've ever played a Wednesday midweek game in Division One baseball, I think you are forced to see a lot of that, right? You're you're running out of arms and you have a big game on Friday, but sometimes that's valuable and you know, sometimes you see that work really well in the fall too. Uh, but I think it's just learning the guys, right? If you see a guy lose command or lose velocity after two innings, okay, well, you're going to be a really good two inning guy when those two innings are going to be, it is going to be dependent on what we need as a team. But if a guy can roll through, you know, the lineup three times because his stuff's good enough to get you outs three times through the lineup, well, yeah, we're not going to put him in the pen. Yeah. Because if a guy can go out and throw bolts for two innings, but his stuff starts to, you know, be less good after that, well, yeah, we're going to try to maximize your best stuff for as long as possible. And I think that makes a, a pretty big determining factor. During the actual game itself, and I know I'm sure you game plan and, and talk to your guys too, but during the game, in between innings, are you going over like, hey, who's coming up? Here's what we want to do with this guy or just let, letting, them, letting them roll at that point and not, not wanting them thinking about much? I would say for the most part, letting them roll. Once somebody really dives into analyzing the hitter, we'll, we'll get more into that. Um, some of those are a little bit more mound visit specific right you bring a you bring a guy in at second and third two outs and it's like hey man you're not throwing a strike you will strike this guy out or you will walk him but those are the two results and i think you can create good clarity there also guys understanding why they're coming into games or i think big weaknesses can be exploited but at the end of the day like i call pitches but we do let our guys swipe we do let our guys throw a conviction pitch and you know, that conviction, I think, matters more than most scouting reports unless it's just a, a glaring issue or or something like that comes up. Do you ever let catchers call even, like, if it's a midweek game, or are you always calling? So we've actually gone away from signs in general and have the uh, pitcher wear a wristband. And for as, as odd as it is to look at and for, you know, any traditionalist to hate it, right, synergy got to the point where people were picking signs at a, a high enough clip that it it seemed stupid not to go to that to us mm -hmm. I don't think the other team's going to know when passes in the dugout just throwing up three numbers and they have to look at a card that changes all the time so it is a, an internal dilemma right we want to teach our guys to call a game and we want to teach our guys to be better at at working through that and in that scenario it doesn't allow that as much so it got it got that bad really yeah and that bad i don't think is some extreme thing but you give up a double when you think the guy's giving signs at second base in a big game and right how many pitches are you okay with losing before yeah. you simple adjustment to not have that happen anymore yeah yeah i definitely definitely get that i, I, I mean, you guys may be the only are you guys the only team that have the, has the pitcher throw, wear a wristband? I don't think so. I, I've seen a couple on TV. We have not faced another team, but I guess I, I, I'm a loser to the point that once the quarantine happened, I watched as many games on ESPN Plus as possible, and I saw some of the other teams that were doing it. 
So I got a, another another question for you, and this one is this is a you know, pretty tough one. Um, have you ever had a player with the yips, and what have you done to try to help him fix it? Yeah, so we have had one, and the kid was a good athlete. He had really good stuff. He he stepped off of the mound during a bullpen and said, Coach, I literally have such a big block in my head, I cannot throw a pitch. And so we ended up not removing him from practice, but he did not like throw during practice. He did not do some of those things. And we just went through some process steps where initially it was just him throwing a ball into a net. And then we had him play shortstop just to throw some balls across the diamond and think about it less. We started varying the ground balls. We'd hit him at shortstop, and part of it was just to keep the arm in shape, but part of it was to to let him throw and see that he could hit a target when he's not thinking about it. Then we did him in a pitching mechanic thrown to a net that didn't have a target or anything. Then we added a target to the net. Then we added some, like, flips where he would lift his leg, and then I would flip him the ball, and he would catch it and throw it where the stimulus was more trying to catch the ball and grip it. Yeah. Than, uh, and it was a pretty gradual progression. I, I'm saying more than it, it wasn't some 12 week progression. The kid worked through it pretty quick. And then at some point he just got back on the mound and was able to pitch effectively. And he even pitched pretty well that year. So it was a, a one person thing, but that was what we did to, to try to eliminate it. Well, that's awesome. And uh, I was talking to Randy Sullivan down to Florida Baseball Ranch about about that too. And he's had a, some experience too. And he was kind of doing and saying the same thing what you guys did, where he'd have them run around like a quarterback um, with a football and throw while they're moving. So just changing changing it up a little bit. I don't know the the yips have always fascinated me. I, I don't know why, but uh, it is. It, I mean, I, I think what you guys did is perfect and great and it's awesome that it didn't take that long because usually it seems when that happens at a either they never get back or b it seems like it can be a a several month long process yeah and i'm not blind to the fact that we are fortunate that it worked out the way it did (laughs) you look like a genius though you look i mean i don't think every scenario goes quite as smooth and easy as as his did but so during during the actual season uh, I mean, tip in a normal year, what, I mean, is it to a point where you, if it's a Friday guy, you're mainly just dealing with the Friday starter and, and, and communication with him and then same Saturday and Sunday, or is it you're still working with all of the pitchers, if that question makes sense? Yeah, I think you have to work with all the pitchers each day. And luckily, luckily enough, um, our football team has allowed us to use the football field during batting practice. So our, our pitchers who are relievers are not pitching that day go to a so totally different park to throw. I, I think it's one of the more comical things in baseball that I still get crap for all the time from our head coach, but I can't stand that our guys try to get better and play catch while guys are hitting BBs at us. And yeah, I, during BB catch play seems to be an interesting, um, norm in baseball so we go down to the football field and that's their time to get better that day and guys know if it's a work day or not and some guys just go down for game prep Um, some guys stay up so that they can use the mound but 
right? Those guys have to get better throughout the course of the season too. We can't just throw it in neutral because we have a game that day and, and hope three weeks from now they are still doing what they need to do. So we try to be pretty specific about it and, and relocating, I think, allows that. How, how often do guys move around on, on the depth chart? Like, is it to a point where a guy stinks in the fall and then, you know, you start to – you see him, you got you know, do some stuff maybe in January, or then you see if he is, is able to throw to live hitters in practice or whatnot, maybe during the season he just climbs his way continually up, or is that pretty rare? I don't think it's rare. And the guy I worked with at East Georgia who works now at Miami, Dusty Hess, made a, a really good point when I worked with him at East Georgia. There's always one player who – pitches and hits really well in the fall and stinks in the spring. And there's always one player who stinks in the fall and comes in and his lights out in the spring. And somehow that seems to hold true a lot, but that's where preseason is unique in baseball, right? It's not spring training. The games matter and we can't just roll a guy out there, but you know, some guys have less opportunity to show us that they need more of a role. Whereas, you know, other guys are getting the ball a little bit more, but you know, that's where I think some, you know, getting pride and old thought process out of the way and watching who he is right now matters a lot more, right? We have to win a game today. We can't win a game with who you were in the fall. And we try to avoid talking about roles in the fall just in general so that guys understand, hey, who you are January 15th means a lot more than who you are November 15th. Yeah, I mean, going off your, your point there, I mean, I was that guy who – uh, raked in the fall and then stunk in the spring. So I, that definitely holds true. Uh, definitely. But um, no, I mean, I, I think what you're, what you're, you know, getting out there is, is definitely right on point and true. And um, you know, I, I just think from a, a player development standpoint in general, you know, especially from a pitching standpoint, you guys definitely have some really good stuff going on at Miami in general. And I know we were talking yesterday about how, you do like individualized plans essentially, and you basically give them to the players every day for them to do on their own. What, what goes into you making or telling them what to do on a daily basis in those plans? Sure. So I, I think the first part of that would be the overall explanation of the goals we have for that player early on in the fall, right? Hey, we have just sat down and combined strength with the training room with the pitching coaches and this is where we see your progressions moving forward and then it's just making sure the guys understand hey if i throw a drill on there that you don't know i'm going to come over and communicate with you what that drill is when you read something you don't know and also i think our guys do an awesome job of being on twitter being on instagram watching youtube videos of stuff Right. If the players ultra bought into something that they find online, they're probably going to take that and run with it really well. So when they come over and say, hey, I'd really like to do this. Yeah, let's let's find a way to add that. Let's find a way to make that work for you and go about our business that way. So it's it's just writing it down daily and then sending it in the morning to them in our group me so that they have a time to process it before they get to the park. So that when they get to the park, they can either come over to me and say, hey, why is this what it is? Or they can go about their business and, you know, crush their plan that day. Uh, last question I got for you. 
What is your favorite statistic, pitching statistic? Do you have one? I think the one that matters the most to me is the whip plus HBP. Okay. I thought, I thought you were actually going to go with wins there, wins and losses. I, I heard the W. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the right answer. Um, I think that's the one we talk about the most and try to evaluate the most for our guys and, you know, put them in a scenario to get really good at that. I think it's comical that HBPs aren't in the whip uh, statistic, but luckily we just, get to put our own statistics out there and tell them why they matter and yeah. have guys buy in for that. Awesome, Matt. This has been a lot of fun, man. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, like I said, I had Justin on. You know, he does a great job on the hitting hitting side up, up there at Miami. And now, clearly, you do a great job on the pitching side, too. So, uh, again, you know, really good stuff going on up at Miami, Ohio on the MAC. Beautiful facilities, too. So, definitely a good spot to be right now. And, again, just appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. I know I really value the podcast and love listening to it, so it's definitely a, a, an honor to be on it. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.